If you would be turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 20 this morning, uh, and uh, we will be looking at our last sermon in the sacrament series. Our hope has been for this series that it would, at minimum, help you better appreciate your baptism so that when you, when you witness a baptism, you could improve upon your baptism, that you could uh, look to your baptism as ongoing means of grace, not just some, something that happened in the past as just mere historical event, but as something that still has a present uh, impact on you as a baptized one. And then as far as the Lord's Supper is concerned, the, the hope would be that we would see more of Jesus in the table, experience more of Jesus, taste more of the Lord's goodness, and be better able to, when we, uh, when we do have the Lord's Supper, be better prepared for it uh, so that we could know just how deeply we are loved. That's been the point of this, this series for us overall, and I hope that that's what's been accomplished so far. We have this last sermon before we begin the book of Ruth starting next Sunday uh, for, yes, it's before the actual Advent in the church calendar, but we, we're loosey-goosey in that regard. Uh, so uh, as you're turning the text, here's the key truth that I want us to walk away with is that Jesus gives us the Lord's Supper as a reminder that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit so as to embody the gospel for God's glory, our joy, and the life of the world. Let me say that again. Jesus gives us the Lord's Supper as a reminder that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit so as to embody the gospel for God's glory, our joy, and the life of the world. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 20. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed and were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, we're parachuting into the middle of a much larger discussion. That is not my usual desire to do that because there's a lot of things that we, we just can't, we don't have time for to give greater context to. But one thing is very important contextually because in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 7 and 8, 
Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper. He's saying there's, there's, that we need to recognize that Christ is the Passover lamb, that he is the ultimate sacrifice. And because of who Christ is, then we ought to purge, he uses the language, purge out the leaven, the things that are going to, uh, in any way, shape, or form, uh, make us unholy so that we can partake or celebrate with sincerity and truth. And he seems to be making reference to the Lord's table there. And so this is part of that broader discussion. He's getting into some things that help us to see how can we better come prepared for the table to partake with sincerity and truth. Now, there's some really hard things being said here. For those of you who have children in the room, you're wondering, how far is he going to go? I'm not going very far with the things you're concerned about. Uh, we don't have time for that, and that really actually is not the focus of this particular sermon as we try to look to how we can come better prepared to the table. So my first question for us is this, is do you view the gospel as only impacting the spiritual part of your life? Now, before you answer that question, I know most of us in here would say, no, no, I, I don't think that. But, but you really probably would need more time to think about it because there may be some ways in which you're functioning a very compartmentalized life. In, in ways that you hadn't really thought about uh, and that actually have an impact. Maybe a better question would be, what areas of your life do you keep the gospel out of? Maybe a better question even still would be, what areas of your life do you never put before the Lord and pray and ask for his, uh, his what he would have you to do with those things? Right? That's really fundamentally where we would get tripped up, isn't it? That there's just spots of our lives that we never ever go to the Lord and ask, hey Lord, is this wise? Is this good? Does this honor, glorify you? Is this gonna actually bring me true joy as one who's in union with Christ? Or do you just operate and make those decisions? Or do you function without ever considering what Christ may have to say about that area of your life? Well, that's why Paul's gonna get so deeply personal. He's going to show us that there is no area of your life that is beyond or outside of the purview of the gospel. There's no area of your life over which Jesus doesn't reign as Lord. Well, if that's true, we would, we would do better to make sure we are putting those areas at various times, right? You can't, don't get neurotic and think you can do it every day, but, but learn to do it in a more ongoing fashion. Well, the Lord's table is a great occasion for us, not every time, but on a regular basis, to open up some of the areas of our life that we have kept uh, the, the Spirit of God out of, so we think. And what we've really done is just kept ourselves in darkness instead of being able to, to be enlightened by the wisdom of God in the person of Christ. And so we don't want to be those folks. We want to make sure that the Lord reigns over all that we are. And so I would challenge you in this way. You can't, like I said, really get too far into it now, but create some space. Ask yourself the question. Maybe even ask someone who knows you, your, your, your spouse or a good friend. Here, there's some areas in my life where it looks like maybe I, I don't really let Jesus in too much. And I only really think about it from a spiritual perspective. I've shared with you all, every time I get behind the wheel of a car, I need Jesus. That's before I've cranked it. Now, once I crank it, it it's really important. Uh, and that's not, that's not a peccadillo, by the way. Right? For me to dishonor other image bearers, and in fact, we're going to see here, there are no victimless crimes. 
There's nothing that we do within our body that doesn't affect the body, ultimately, right? Now, you may say, well, how does your uh, road rage have any effect on our body? Well, think about how it might affect. What if you're one of the ones that's going slow? Just ask Patrick Skeen. He got behind Susan one time. She was going slower than he preferred. He's, he's dealt with it. He can take communion this morning. It's fine. But I, I saw him cursing her lineage in the mirror, and I had to text him. I'm like, Patrick, it's us, man. What are you doing? He's like, well, speed up. <laughs> <clears throat> but if, if I can easily, if I, as pastor of a church, a servant of the Lord our God, if I can diminish someone's value over something as silly as their driving ability, uh, or their understanding of line psychology, whatever it may be. What happens when, when you bring something of real significance that, that I need to steward? Right? Nothing's casual. It bleeds into all places if we're not careful. This is why we must keep short accounts and the table helps us do that. Why we must keep a watch, as, as, as Paul tells Timothy, we must keep a watch on our lives. And so... He's getting into, we're parachuting into a conversation he had just had with them about them, uh, instead of using the wisdom of the Lord, they were using the wisdom of the world to try to, to, to decide what was right and wrong in their community. And so he was, he's basically telling them, why would you turn to those who don't use the wisdom of the Lord to decide something uh, that you all ought to be able to reason out yourselves, right? We've seen this in other passages. And so he's basically saying, do you not know that the unrighteous, and remember, every time you hear righteous or unrighteous, the thing that ought to come to your mind is Exodus 34, 6, and 7, which is the characteristics of God, right? The word righteous means that we are to display God's character, steadfast in love, slow to anger, uh, merciful, forgiving, just. Some of us are not terribly just. And so all of these things are to be displayed in us. And when there's unrighteousness, what does that mean? That means that you're not going to get steadfast love. You're, gonna, you're not getting slowness to anger. You're not getting mercy. You're not getting grace. You're not getting justice. So that is an important word for us to make sure that when we hear it, read it, that we recognize what it's pointing to. So he's saying, why would you turn to someone who embodies the opposite of who God is? And he goes on to say, because they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he gives a list, and, and another important point for you biblically is that anytime you see a list, rarely is it intended to be exhaustive, right? It's giving you a, a, a broad range of things, kind of hitting on a bunch of different points. So it's not like you could take this list and go, okay, I am none of these things, therefore I am okay. You would be doing what the rich young ruler does. And it doesn't lead him closer to Christ, by the way. But notice the, the varying aspects of the list. And, and unfortunately, I think we sometimes like to pick out a couple of these and make them somehow worse than the other. And that's another problem that we need to be careful of. But it says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters. Now, idolatry comes in lots and lots of different forms, right? In America, our love of sports uh, could be idolatry. My wife can tell you, during the Braves games with the Phillies, she saw a human being that she had no idea existed. <laughs> right? Except for maybe that Falcons-Patriots game uh, in the Super Bowl. 
And so she was like, well, who are you? Like, what is, what is wrong with you? Uh, why are you so upset about this? And I, I didn't really have a great answer, so I just used guttural noises, which is what you should do when you're trying to be idolatrous and you're being confronted. Just go with guttural noises. They'll think you're speaking in tongues. It's fine. Uh, and so the idolatry comes in so many different forms. Is money? Those of us who, who, who focus on money and security. See, an idol is anything that we try to get to share supremacy with Christ. So this is one where I don't know many of us get out of it. Even if you're like, hey, I'm, I'm not any of these other things, well, that one may get you, and there's a couple more here. I'm not going through every one of them, but I wanted to highlight a couple. It says, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers. Now, this is a term that precedes the internet and yet has a pretty significant impact on how we communicate with one another uh, or at one another or about one another on the internet. Uh, many of us are revilers in this, this digital space if we're not careful. Some of you are revilers in person. I'm a reviler when I get behind the wheel of a car and I'm cursing someone's lineage. That's reviling, is it not? And it goes on. Swindlers, nor swindlers would inherit the kingdom of God. And this next phrase is very important that you hear. And such were some of you. Now this is, this is insanely, it ought to be insanely orienting for us. Because this, this gets at how we are to embody the gospel. And that, that, in fact, it is part of what the Lord's table causes us to have to be confronted with every single time. You know, one of the, one of the ways in which I fence the table is I'll, I'll often say this phrase. We're like, hey, if you uh, harbor unforgiveness in your heart towards someone else, you think that they are worthy of the fires of hell, not being God, not knowing their heart, you can't partake of the table. Right? Now, and, and so here's one of the ways we do that. There's some, some, a couple things in this list above that we think are somehow uniquely broken and uniquely beyond the, the, the pale of the gospel, uniquely beyond the reach of Christ himself. Now, I want to be very clear. Of that list, every single one of them are in Christ to go and, and his phrase is sin no more, which doesn't mean perfect, be perfect, but what it does mean is that you no longer identify in that way and that you no longer uh, uh, act on those things uh, on a regular basis. You may slip up now and again, you may struggle, you, you may be tempted, but there ought to be a genuine change and difference in your embodiment, how you live in the world, right? And so, so if such were some of us, who are we to look back at this list and look down on any one of them in particular? It's the same distance that needs to be covered by Christ for all of them and for all of us. So every time we come to the table, it helps to reorient us and remember that we are not to hate sinners for being sinners. That's not what brings people to the gospel. What we are to do is to stand in that incredibly hard paradoxical place of recognizing that they are, in fact, sinful, unrighteous, and that, that left to that identity will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that should cause us not anger toward them, but grief. 
And it should move us to love. Grief should move us to, to long for better for them and love for them and to move toward them in a, in a way that's different, that embodies, displays the gospel. Not to return to reviling toward them because of their struggle, right? Because and such were some of us. Now notice what he says. He invokes their baptism. He says, but you've been washed, which the, their baptism, this also signifies, they've been washed in the blood of Christ himself, but is that not what our baptism signifies? And in faith, it is sealed, right? So he's reminding them, you are baptized. You are being sanctified. That means you're being matured in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're growing in maturity, which he's going to get to here in just a moment. And he's saying, and you've been justified. You, you are in Christ by his name and the spirit of God himself. You are different people now. You're not who you were. And that gives uh, the opportunity to serve as ambassadors of reconciliation, which you'll pick up in the second Corinthian letter in chapter five. And so he then turns to something that they, they asked him about. So if you are looking in your scripture the, where there are quotation marks around certain phrases, this is where he's saying, here's something you've asked me about. And he's addressing it. So Somebody in the Corinthian church said, hey, because we're in Christ, all things are lawful for me now. Right? And he goes, nah, but not all things are helpful. Now, this is where we need to grow in maturity. Uh, for many of our students, <laughs> I love you guys, but sometimes all you want to know is, is, can I do it? Not whether or not it's wise to do it. Yeah, you can drive that car at 100 miles an hour going around that curve and see what it can do. You sure can. It's actually not lawful as it turns out either, by the way. Maybe I shouldn't have used that example. Let me try something else. No, there's many things. It, all we want to know is, can I do it? Can I get away with it? That's not the question anymore for those of us who are in Christ. In fact, Paul says this very thing in Galatians chapter 4 when he talks about that the law, apart from Christ, is a tutor for an immature student. So just the mere question of right and wrong is for a child, not one who is maturing an adult in Christ. Because the better question is to say, okay, but law matters. He's not saying that the law doesn't matter. But what he is saying is that we, we need to, in Christ, ask, is this actually going to be helpful? But helpful for what? Right? You've you got to have some question by which to answer that. Well, helpful for the entire body of Christ, as he's going to get to here in just a moment. Not just helpful for you. There is no concept of radical individualism in Scripture. Everything we do, we do as part of the body of Christ. When you are functioning just in and of yourself, one thing you can almost guarantee is that you are probably operating in unrighteousness. There are no victimless crimes. Nothing is neutral. And we, we would do well to mature in that concept. And then he goes on to, to repeat the thing again. All things are lawful for me. And then he, then he gives a little bit more information. But I will not be dominated by anything. Right? Christ is Lord. So I, one of the ways we can recognize is something out of phase is if it's dominating us. What's interesting to me uh, a lot of times about when, when people begin to kind of go astray is, is how much effort and energy they put into just that subject. 
They create a, a bit of a, a silo. I'm guilty of this. I've done it. They create a silo, and, and that, it becomes an echo chamber. And one thing you can, you can recognize in and of yourself as part of your maturation in Christ is are you willing to take what you are wrestling with and put it before some folks you trust that you know are wise in Christ that are still going to love you and help walk with you through it? Uh, I am notorious for only wanting to walk alone. It's kind of how I've been my whole life. It's how I grew up. I'm an only child who grew up in a very dysfunctional family system. I was left alone a lot. I'm very comfortable being alone, but there's some dangers in that because I don't have all the gifts. I don't have all the experience. And so for me to just come up with ideas in a vacuum and not ever have them tested or not ever have them pushed on and pressed is a really dangerous thing. And it's true for you too. And so you want to be careful that you're not dominated by anything. And that term domination is very important because what usually is, what do you think of when you think, oh, I'm I'm being dominated? That's not a good thing. That means you are being destroyed. That means you are being overwhelmed, overcome by something that doesn't love you. God loves you. Remember, Satan is not looking for followers. He's looking for food. He must destroy you and I if he, if he can because he's got to extinguish the image of God, right? I mean, we, we see all throughout Scripture, even, even the, what was going on prior to the flood could not extinguish the image of God. And so it's very important that we recognize what, what Paul's saying here. We need to, we need to grow up. We, we need to recognize that the, the question is whether or not something is actually helpful for the entire body, for the glory of God, and for the witness, the mission. And then they, they threw something else out. Well, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. I have no earthly idea what they're talking about here. That sounds super obvious to me. <laughs> um, but they're probably asking something to do with food sacrificed to idols, or they may be asking about certain dietary things. We really don't know. Uh, but what, he's, what he says next is very important because he's saying, don't let this idea dominate you. God is going to destroy both one and the other. So conversations about food and stomach, that's not really a mature conversation. And that's why he says, you, you know, you can, he'll go on later in Corinthians, you can eat food sacrificed to idols, but the thing you've got to do is make sure you're, you're paying attention to who's around. If you're going to cause them to stumble, he got into this in Romans, right? Don't. If people are around that don't cause them to stumble, do. Read the room. Make sure you understand the circumstance. Don't flaunt your freedom. He goes on to expand further. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. This is something that we need to recognize. You can't just do anything you want in and of your body and think that that has no impact on who you are in union with Christ. This has tons of implications, right? Uh, but he's specifically focusing on the sexual just because that is the most vulnerable when it comes to any of our embodiedness. And he goes on to say, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. That means that we, the sufferings that we currently experience in our bodies, uh, will one day cease. So why would we want to make decisions that are going to affect in our bodies eternity when that won't carry over? Right? This is very important that we recognize that don't make a temporal decision to, to, to do something with and in your body just because it feels good or just because it seems to relieve something, right? I mean, this is, this is 
part and parcel of the opioid pandemic that we have, epidemic. It's part and parcel of all of the, the conversations we're having about identity. We need to have an eternal perspective. We will be raised to newness of life someday, delivered from these things. For those of you who wonder, why does Cameron have that really weird hairline? It looks like his head caught fire somewhere. Well, I have something called Hashimoto's. Uh, and I, I have no control over it. And it chooses to do just weird things when it wants to do weird things. And there's a part of me that, that longs for the day when I will be resurrected. Are, are there shortcuts I could take to get around it? Eh, probably. Some of you are thinking, oh, I've got a nutritional video for you. <laughs> my, my thyroid blew out a long time ago. Ain't, ain't, not a lot's going to be salvaged at this point, but there's wisdom in eating an anti-inflammatory diet, and I'll leave it there. Uh, chicken wings apparently are not on the anti-inflammatory diet, which is why I think it's bogus. So, uh, <laughs> some things you just suffer. But the hope of the resurrection is very important to us, and that should be part of any discussion that we have about any of the struggles that we have in our body. He goes on to say, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So he says even further, not only is it that you will be resurrected, but you've got to understand that what you do in your body affects the whole rest of the church. This goes back to Matt's sermon a bit when he, when he talks about one of the things we have to do is consider the body before we come to the table. This isn't just radical individualism. It goes back to what, what Christ said in Matthew 5, that we are to leave what we have at the altar, go make it right, and come back. The condition of the body is very important. We understand this. Uh, any of us who have gone through either struggles with our children or struggles in marriage recognize it did. If you were part of a church and you were serving in that church, it had an impact, did it not? I had to resign as elder uh, because our, our teenage kids were losing their ever-loving minds by my lights and Susan's too. And so I, I could not serve both. And, and I resigned for a year uh, and, uh, and came back uh, in, in the Lord's providence when the time was right. But there, the, it had, what was going on in my family, had an impact on my ability to do what the Lord had called me to do at New City Church in Macon. Um, I had no control over that in toto, but it just does, doesn't it? Not to mention if we get ourselves tangled up in any number of other sinful things, that, that we think we're hiding well, that causes us to pull away from other people, which signals something's going on, right? And so we have to recognize that, that, that in the gospel, we, how we live matters, matters deeply. And he goes on to say, uh, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know a bit of language from the book of Proverbs where you have Lady Wisdom and the adulterous woman? I don't think he's speaking specifically of a single prostitute here. But, but we do find that when we, we, we choose to go against God's wisdom for things, we, it's not neutral. We're yoking ourselves to something very different, a different community of sorts, a community of the unholy, the unrighteous, who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so we have to be aware of what, what influences are we putting ourselves under? What are we taking in? I think it was William Blake, the poet, who said, that which you behold, you become. I found this to be true, Susan. I've told you all this before. can always tell when I am listening to darker styles of music 
or rap, gangster rap stuff from my old days, uh, she can tell it begins to have an effect. And certainly reading, if, if I, I find myself in, in a space where I'm reading a lot of folks who are uh, postmodern or in, uh, in, in lots of ways just disenchanted with the world, I suddenly become a bit more disenchanted, a bit more postmodern, a bit more insufferable, actually. And that affects her, right? And it affects you. Maybe in ways you, you don't even know how to quantify, but it does. And so we need to recognize that how we live out the gospel is very important. And he, he, he uses the scripture to say, look, to become one flesh, you, this isn't arbitrary. Sex isn't casual. Here's what's interesting about this. This is important to say for, for those of you who are in youth group. This is science. This ain't, and it's, this, isn't, this isn't intelligent design science, which I'm not putting that down. This is just flat science. The first person that you engage with in sexual activity, you become neurologically, neurochemically yoked to. It changes your brain. It rewires it. Thus, think about it now, ought you not choose wisely? If you're going to engage in something that is going to change the formation of the very brain that is in your head, which, by the way, changes the chemistry, which, by the way, changes the desire, which, by the way, changes the action, ought you not be very careful with who you entrust that kind of power to? That's both boys and girls, by the way. It's unique in how it affects boys. It's also unique in how it affects girls because of the differences. Either way, it's still profound. So this is a, God's not being silly or arbitrary or a killjoy by saying to you, I know how I made you. Be very careful with what you submit yourself to, what you are dominated by. Those of us who have made those mistakes, we can tell you, we were dominated. And it was destructive. You ought to listen to us. We're scarred and hopefully smarter. It goes on to say, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. So if you've got to flee from something, what does that tell you? Does that, does that mean it's going to be eat, like it's like, I just, I, I can ignore that. That's easy to ignore. No, if you've got to flee from it, it's got some power to it, which it does, right? There is insanely powerful the kind of desire that it creates in us and the kind of things that we submit ourselves to. So you've got to flee it. You have to. God's not going to, he'll open ways, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He'll open ways for you to escape temptation, but you are the one who has to run. He won't run for you. And he goes on to say, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. This means that what we do in our bodies matters. If our bodies didn't matter, why would he say this? And he goes on to say, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So he's making it very clear here who and whose we are. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. That's a gift. We saw that at Pentecost. It's a gift that Christ dies and rises and ascends to give to us. Why would we diminish that gift or dishonor that gift 
with how we conduct ourselves, with how we live out the gospel in our bodies. This is something the table helps to remind us of, does it not? That if Christ died for you and Christ rose for you, that he, he longs for you to remember you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You are being nourished to live out the gospel in an embodied fashion. This is one of the gifts of the Lord's table to us. And we recognize in the table that we are not our own. We are connected to one another. This matters. I think we, somewhere along the way, and this is not unique to American Christianity, but we've so cheapened grace that we act like how we live just doesn't matter. The things we take in, we'll just, we'll catch up in the curve. We'll, 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 the, 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 you know, the, the struggle defines instead of the gospel. And here we are reminded, no, that should not be true. Christ is Lord. No, nothing should dominate you. Christ is not trying to dominate us. He, he longs to reign over. And notice what he invites us into as a great hospitable host. This is one of the great gifts of the table is it reminds us of the great hospitality of Christ that he beckons us to come before him so that he can intercede for us and the spirit pray for us. And so this last question from uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism in reference, last question for us in terms of the sermon series, I think it's important because it actually addresses how you are to go away from the supper, right? We've talked a lot about preparation, but this is actually a diagnostic of, well, how did I, how did I go through the supper? How did I embody the gospel in engaging with the supper? So here, here are the words that it says. The question is 175. What is the duty of Christians after they have received the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? The duties of Christians after they have received the sacrament of the Lord's Supper are the following. They are seriously to consider how they behaved themselves, or you could say embodied the gospel, how they behaved themselves um, during it and with what result, right? So you may say behaved, but this is, again, think embodied. Did you, did, you, did you prepare beforehand? Did you realize the beauty of the gospel message in the table itself? Uh, did, did, you, did you, if you had a, a situation where you're at odds with someone else, leave your gift at the altar and go make it right? And then it has two different other questions that are kind of two halves of, of the same coin. It says, if they find new life and comfort in the Lord's table, they are to bless God for it. Beg for the continuance of it. Keep watch against relapses. Fulfill their vows and encourage themselves to a frequent attendance of that ordinance. So this is essentially saying, if the Lord blesses you in the table, and that's if, you notice, then give thanks. And, and beg that that would continue for you and then live out, embody the truth of the table, the truth of the gospel itself. This next one I think is fascinating because of just, the, just sheer honesty. And, and, and there's, there's, I, there's a big beauty in honesty to me. It says, but if they find no present benefit. So think about this. These are, this is the Westminster divines. The folks that we would have accused of maybe, maybe being... Uh, frozen chosen, or uh, in some way, shape, or form, thinking it's just all simple math. No. No, that's not them at all. They recognize that there are times when you will gain 
nothing by your knowledge or by your experience of the table. So if that's the case, then carefully review your preparation to and behavior in the sacrament. Now think about this for a second. I was just a regular old church member long ago and made many mistakes in the car ride on the way home. Made many mistakes over lunch in choosing instead to examine myself, instead to examine the quality or the, my feeling in reference to uh, the service itself or any particular element. Rarely, and this has just been my experience, rarely do we ask of ourselves first, was it me? Was it me? Was it, did, I, did I stay up too late watching USC blow another game? Did I, did I stay up too late watching the Phillies beat yet another opponent? Did I stay up too late? Did I, did I, did I in some way, shape, or form fail to prepare? That's not where we go first, but here the instructions, no, 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 no. You go there first. Examine yourself first. And then it says, in both their preparation and behavior, if they can approve themselves to God and their own consciences. So notice the Westminster divines recognize it may not have been you. You may have done everything right, as it were. He then says, if it ain't you, then you must wait. They are to wait for the fruit of the table in due time. But if they see that they have failed in either, they are to be humbled and attend to it afterwards with more care and diligence. How we live out the gospel in our bodies, it matters, it matters, it has an impact on our experience of the means of grace. It matters to what the body of, of localized body of Christ can do. It either helps us or it limits us. And there is no radical individualism. There's no victimless crime. Uh, and it's very important that we recognize that, that the Lord loves us and longs for us to experience our relationship to him and to one another in a way that brings us joy. That's why the Lord's table is not a funeral service. It actually is a celebration. It's a celebration of who and whose we are, our new identity in Christ. And what a gift it is on this last of the sacrament series to be able to partake of the table and put some of these things into practice and to think on these things. What a gift it is for us to be reminded of, of the fact that we who were once a whole list of evil things that could not inherit the kingdom of God are no longer those things by virtue of who? Christ. Not us, not our decision-making, not our will, not our strength, not our bootstrap theology, but because Christ himself looked on us with love and beckoned us in the love of God to come and be made new so that we will one day depart from these, this, as Shakespeare says, this mortal coil. And mine feels more mortal than coil, as it turns out. And so that one day we will not continue to struggle in the ways that we're struggling now. This, this is a light and momentary affliction, to use Paul's terms, uh, this, compared to the weight of the glory of being redeemed in Christ. That means we have to live that way. We have to live as if that is true, recognizing that some days it won't feel. Some years, some decades, it won't feel like that at all. And so... Remember what it was that Christ said to his closest friends in the world, people that he loved 
in his body, the people that he had journeyed with, the people that he will shed his blood for, as they're at that Passover meal, the last time he will dine with them before he is crucified, he takes bread and he, and he breaks it and he says, this, this is my body given as gift for you. What that means is that they would no longer struggle fully under the weight of their shame and guilt or fear of the Lord's judgment of them. God's wrath is satisfied in full for, for those who are in Christ. That is great gift. As the meal went on, he took the cup and he raised it. He said, this, this is the cup of the new covenant. And anytime you hear the term new covenant, you should think heart of flesh, transformation of the individual such that we can now embody the gospel in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, right? We're not perfect. It's about keeping the law, as Paul tells us. It's about actually doing what is most helpful to God's glory, our joy, and the life of the world. He said, and this, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. So he was reminding them fully of who and whose they were, and he wanted them to do it in an ongoing fashion so that they would remember who and whose they are. Because we, just like them, very, very quickly forget, do we not? So may this be a reminder to us this morning. So as you receive the elements, let me just say this. If you don't profess Christ as Savior, please don't take. It won't do you any good. There's nothing magic in it. There's no incantation. It doesn't help you. In fact, it's better to confess that you're not. That, that truer confession will be more helpful to you than partaking and pretending to be something you're not. And then secondly, if, you, if there's someone that you think doesn't deserve forgiveness, if there's some part of that list or any other list that you think has no business being in the kingdom and being loved of, of God, you can't take. Because you're talking about a completely different table then. This is the table of forgiveness. This is the table of renewal and resurrection, right? And so as you receive, would you meditate on these things? Remember who and whose you are and pray that the Lord be gracious to you, that it would be sweet to you in this time. Regardless of what your preparation has been, may he be gracious. But going forward, something we should take seriously, not in the, not in the sense of sobriety, but so we can celebrate. I, I want to be able to celebrate it better. I want to better know how deeply I am loved. And I want the same for you. If the elders would go ahead and come forward, uh, we'll pray and then pass out the elements. Oh, and by the way, if you want to look up the lyrics to the last song, I don't, did, you, did, they, did y'all fix the... Lyrics? Hopefully. If not, the last song is a song called All Shall Be Well, and the lyrics that you want are the ones from Indelible Grace. There's like 1,400 different songs entitled All Shall Be Well. I started looking, I was like, that's not it, that's not it, that's not it. So if you want to participate and be able to sing along, you can actually use your phones in worship for once and not feel guilty about it. I know some of you still do. Uh, And so you can use that for the last song so we can participate. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that this table represents how deeply we are loved, that you would give your only son to redeem us, that you would sacrifice so much that he would suffer in his humanity, in reality, such that we could be redeemed and set free from the fear of suffering and sin and death. God, thank you that you nourish us, that you call us to embody the gospel, to live out the image of Christ in our words and in our deeds. Help us mature in that. Help us mature in asking better questions than is this legal, can I get away with it? But instead, look at what is actually helpful 
for the body of Christ. Help us to remember that we are not radical individuals, that what we do matters to the entire body of Christ. It affects us all eventually. So help us live in such a way with humility and with honor and with grace because you have loved us first. Help us love our neighbors well. Help us love you well. In Christ's name, amen.